As I said earlier, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching from these two passages that were read. And I just want to remind you, um, or tell you if you're visiting with us, that we have some visitor guides on the tables, these resource tables by the doors that give, us, give you some information about us. You'll also find Bibles there. So if you'd like a Bible to use during the service, you can get up and make your way over there and grab one. Well, as I said earlier, um, we are in the season of Advent, and this year, each week, we've been looking at some of the places where God appeared in the pages of the Old Testament. Theologians call this uh, theophanies, which means appearances of God. And today, we're looking at the passages that have been read from the book of Daniel about a time when God appeared to a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar and three Jewish exiles named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I don't know what you know about this story. Maybe you know that Kanye West wrote an opera about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And hopefully you'll see why that's very fitting. Um, But maybe you, you grew up with this story because... Um, believe it or not, this is one of the stories that we teach children. We call this a children's story. Um, and it's easy to see why, right? Like maybe you saw it on, on a flannel graph or in a Sunday school lesson because it, this is a fascinating, colorful story full of action. There's a, an evil king and a fiery furnace. And the good guys win. You know, that's not a spoiler alert. You just heard the passage. Um, hopefully you were paying attention. The good guys win. So this is perfect for kids. Color, drama, action, and the good guys win. It's easy to see why we do that. But as long as we see this as a children's story, there's a danger here. Um, we will see it as, as not relevant to us. But this isn't a children's story. This is a human story. And if it's a human story, then we must see ourselves in the pages of this story. So let me pray that we'll do that. Lord, would you speak to us this morning because we need to hear you speak. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. And Lord, may the meditations of all of our hearts together and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So where do you see yourself in this story? How about King Nebuchadnezzar? He is, after all, the main character of the story. Do you know that? Wait, maybe you thought it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they're the ones we typically identify with. But um, the text actually tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar is the main character of the story. He gets the first word and the last word. He does almost all the action and almost all the talking. He is the main character. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So what do we know about King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the Bible tells us and history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. He was the greatest warrior king and ruler in the known world during the 6th century B.C., And Babylon, his hometown, was the crown jewel of the empire. It was the most impressive city of its day. And people came from all over the world to visit Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar ruled. He ruled Babylon and he ruled the world. 
We've even found um, an inscription from ancient Babylon of the day of his inauguration. Archaeologists have uncovered this. And this is what he prayed on the day of his inauguration to his false god, Maratuk. He said, O merciful Maratuk, may the house that I have built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attain old age therein with abundant offspring. Sounds like a pretty normal prayer, right? But then get this. And receive therein tribute of the kings of all regions from all mankind. Do you hear the ambition there? He was an ambitious, powerful man. Maybe you've prayed to God for long life and healthy children, but I, I don't think any of us in this room have prayed that all the nations would come and worship us, have we? Nebuchadnezzar was an ambitious, powerful man, and guess what? He actually got it. He got what he wanted. He ruled the known world, the world of his day. And that's why we see so many leaders listed out so many times in this passage. If you read it, it's over and over again. It's making this emphasis of all of the leaders of the world are gathered there together. Verse 4 just states it outright. All people, nations, and languages. This is universal language. Or un- you know, and then there are universal instruments even that keep getting listed out over and over. This is universal language showing that Nebuchadnezzar is at the center of his world. Imagine the United Nations or the opening ceremony of the Olympics. This is the scene that's going on here in these, in these verses. And it's meant to display that Nebuchadnezzar has universal and absolute reign over the world as he knew it. This is every villain's dream, right? Um, World domination, and he achieved it. But he, he wasn't satiated with it. It wasn't enough to just rule the world. He wanted the nation's admiration and allegiance. He wanted to bask in his achievement so verse 1 tells us that he built an image, and he set it up in Babylon, 90 feet tall, about the size of the courthouse over there, if you've ever climbed the stairs to the top. It's covered in gold. It would have been magnificent and commanding, right? And what was the purpose of this image? It was a monument to who? To Nebuchadnezzar. It was an embodiment of the splendor and power of his reign. And in verse 5, we see that he commands all the nations, all the people of the earth, to bow down and worship the image. Now, does that ring any bells for you? Does that sound like anyone else? Who else do we know who created something in his image? and governs over all creation and requires worship. If you're a reader of the Bible, now or then, you know that in the beginning of the story, God created human beings in his image to worship and love him and govern all creation under him. So what is Nebuchadnezzar doing here? What conclusion should we be making? He is playing God. He is setting himself up in the center of the universe 
He is claiming for himself what only belongs to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. In fact, this story is in the middle of the scriptures, and it points us back and it points us forward. We can look all the way back to Adam and Eve, to their rebellion against God and his authority. We can look back to the Tower of Babel, another monument built in a plain in Babylon as a a testimony to human ambition and achievement. And then we can look all the way forward in the scriptures to the very end of the story, to the Antichrist, who sets himself up against God's authority and demands to be worshipped. So we're supposed to read Nebuchadnezzar's actions here, not just as a two-dimensional evil villain who wants to be in charge, We're supposed to see this as tantamount to declaring war on God. It is an egregious sin that's being described in these passages. He is claiming for himself what only belongs to God. See, this isn't a children's story, is it? Yeah, this is Game of Thrones. This is Lord of the Rings. This is House of Cards. This is a Machiavellian story of power. And we love powerful people, don't we? See, we can read the story of Nebuchadnezzar and easily villainize him because we know how it ends and we know how the story wants us to see him, but I'm not sure we would come to the same conclusions if he were alive today. I think we admire contemporary Nebuchadnezzar's. We look up to ambitious, successful people, to the goal-oriented achievers. Whether it's in the world of sports or business or politics, we like winners. Their biographies are on our shelves. Their documentaries are on our TVs. We collect their autographs. We tell stories of meeting the powerful, successful people. And we drop their names into conversations. The ones we know we drop their names to show that we too are close to power. We too are special. I think we admire Nebuchadnezzar's. Just think of Steve Jobs. We, most, most people have a positive view of Steve Jobs, right? He brought us the iPod. He brought us the click when our headphones go in, into a headphone jack, right? He brought us the iPhone, so now we can you know, do all sorts of things, like play Scrabble on the toilet um, and text our boss at the same time. We love Steve Jobs. He was successful. He was smart. He was innovative. But read his biography. He was also ruthless. Ask his competitors. He wanted to conquer them. And by the way, what's the image on the back of our iPhones? It's Eve's apple. It's the forbidden fruit. Do you remember the lie the serpent told Eve? You will be like God. And we're all children of Eve, aren't we? We all play God in some respect. Now, maybe you're thinking, I I don't seek out power for myself, so I'm, I'm not like Eve. I'm not like Nebuchadnezzar. But we sure don't want our enemies to be in control. So what do we do when we're afraid of our enemies? We seek out strong men to defend us. 
to protect our interests and our tribe. And you see those people in the story too, right? In verse 12 and verse 24, you see these supporting characters around Nebuchadnezzar saying like very cliche things like, um, hey, king, some people don't, aren't paying any attention to you. Or when, when he says, wait, weren't there three men that we threw into the fire? They say, true, O king. Like there's any other way to respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. See, we, we do this too. We come around powerful people that can protect us. Listen, we turn on the news right now, and we're going to see a power struggle. We're going to hear a lot of talk about power. But here's the problem. It's easy for us to think, that's not me. Those guys in Washington are power hungry, but that's not me. I'm not like them. They are the problem. But you know what? Every time we jockey for power and status in the office, every time we lie to make ourselves look better, every time we demean another group of people and other, in, in order to feel superior to them, every time we gaslight our spouse or manipulate the data to win an argument, we are playing God. We are seeking power and seeking to come out on top. So let me ask you again, can you relate to Nebuchadnezzar? But here's the thing about power. You can literally have all the power in the world and still not get what you want because you can't control another human being. You can't control disease or disaster or death. Maybe you say, I don't see myself in Steve Jobs. Maybe you say, I don't see myself in the, the leaders of Washington. Maybe you think, I don't seek out power. I'm not power hungry. But let me ask you this. What happens when you feel powerless? Think about the moments when you're most out of control. We see it right here in the text with Nebuchadnezzar. All it takes to dismantle his illusion of power is for three young Jews to tell him No. Look at his emotional temperature. In verse 13, he reacts to the three young Jews with, quote, furious rage. Did you hear the language as it was read? He was filled with fury in verse 19. And the expression of his face, the literal word there is the image. The image of his face is changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the irony. Nebuchadnezzar can control the image of gold, but he can't control his own image. He can't control his own anger. And all of this language around his actions, the urgency, the haste, the immediacy, all of that when his authority is challenged shows us that he becomes angry and anxious when he doesn't get what he wants. Let me ask you again, do you relate to King Nebuchadnezzar? I know I do, because I become angry and anxious when I don't get what I want. Parents, I know you relate to King Nebuchadnezzar in this. Stop putting the bike pump in your mouth and pumping up your face. It's gross and you'll get hurt. Stop climbing on the TV. You're, you're going to crush your head when it falls on you. And I love you. And I, don't, I, I don't want your head to be crushed. Those, are, those were both said in my house by me in the past three days. <laughs> True story. 
It's infuriating. We can't control them. They're a fraction of our size and we can't control them. (laughs) And we become anxious and angry when we lose control and power. Think of the moments when you're most powerless. When you're driving to LAX to catch a flight and you're stuck and nothing you can do will get you there to make your flight. What about when you're lying in a hospital bed and you hear the machines or a loved one is in the hospital bed and we can't do anything to heal ourselves or the people that we love or when when we're on the other end of a breakup and we can't do anything to make someone love us. In moments of powerlessness, I know I become anxious and angry. Do you? I remember visiting a man who was at one of my former churches. His wife had left him. We were talking and praying. And he gets the text from his wife that says, the marriage is over. I'm never coming back. And I remember holding him as he was trembling and crying in this almost primitive moan of pain and anger came out of him. Nothing he could do would bring her back. These are the moments that throw us on our knees to the only one who can rescue us. Maybe we're more like Nebuchadnezzar than we realize. But what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you relate to them? What, what would make three unarmed young men defy a king like Nebuchadnezzar? Who are these men? Well, first, we know that they're Jews. Look at verse 8. It tells us that. And then verse 12 says that they were appointed over the affairs, certain Jews that were appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Now, you would expect Jews to be in Jerusalem if you've been reading the Bible, right? But not in Babylon. So how did they get there? Well, these men were exiles. They were captured and taken to Babylon. And Scripture tells us that that there is a divine and a human cause here in this exile. God judged the, the people of Judah for their idolatry, and he sent them into the Babylonian exile. But the human side of that is that Nebuchadnezzar's particular style of conquest was this style of, of cultural assimilation. This, is, this was how he demonstrated his power. He would, go, he would conquer a nation, and then he would capture the best and brightest, the young intellectuals, musicians, artists, and he would cart them off to Babylon. He would strip them of their culture. He would take away their names and give them new names, and he would make them Babylonian. It was a way of cultural assimilation, a way of asserting his dominance. And we can see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of this because they're, they're part of his administration. That's how, he, that's how he practiced conquest. And empires have always done things like this. King George did this to the Scottish after the revolt of 1745 
led by Bonnie Prince Charlie. He outlawed Scottish songs, Scottish kilts, Scottish names like McGregor. He even outlawed bagpipes. Now, I could personally go the rest of my life without hearing another bagpipe. Um, but you see, it, it's a power play. The empire is asserting, the king was asserting his dominance over the Scottish. And the same thing is happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar is asserting his authority over these exiles and making them Babylonian. And so the question of the day for the Jewish people, the question of the day was how do we relate to the empire? How then should we live? How should we live in, in, when, we, when our land's being taken away f- from us? How should we live in a nation that's not our own? How should we relate to King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, some said, um, well, you should resist by fighting or withdrawing and revolt, you know, some, some form of revolt. Others said, just compromise and worship their gods and play along and, and find security and you'll be safe. But there's a third way. And we see this in the prophets of Scripture, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And this third way was to actually seek the welfare of the city, to seek the welfare of Babylon, and to even pray to the Lord on its behalf, but without compromising faithfulness to Yahweh, without compromising loyalty to the true God. So what does that look like? It looks like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have Babylonian names. Those names are their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. Verse 21, they have Babylonian clothes. Verse 12, they even have Babylonian governmental jobs. Yet, when asked to participate in the idolatry of Babylon, they resist. And in so doing, they show that their true loyalty is not to any human king, but to their God. And that's actually how they're able to defy Nebuchadnezzar. It's because they answered to a higher power. They answered to, they they knew a greater authority. They, They knew an authority that wasn't playing God, but was God, the true ruler of the nations. Look at what they said in verse 16 through 18 when he gave them the ultimatum to worship the image or die. This is their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Sounds kind of cheeky, right, to say to a king. If this be so, if you kill us or if you deliver us to the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, that may sound like the most polite um, nonviolent resistance, but it's actually a burn. See what I did there? The fire. Um, They could have just said, our God will deliver us. Um, But they didn't say that. They said, our God will deliver us out of your hand. Do you remember what happened in verse 15? 
whenever, whenever the minions say, hey, there are these certain Jews that aren't paying attention to you. And he says, bring them to me and we'll throw them in the fire. And he says, we'll see who can deliver them, what kind of God it is that can deliver them out of my hand. He's saying, are you, are you saying that your God is more powerful than me? And they're saying, yes, our God will deliver us out of your hand. And that is a power play. They're saying, you're, you're a powerful king. You've got a really hot oven. But you've got nothing on the God of the universe. You are impotent against him. And that shows us how these men saw this conflict. And how they saw the whole conflict with the image. It wasn't a power struggle between them, the exiles, and the king, the powerful king who was their conqueror. No, it was a power struggle between King Nebuchadnezzar and God himself. And then they add this this beautiful display of faith in verse 18. Even if he doesn't deliver us in this moment, we're still going to be faithful to him. He still gets to be God. And you don't, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's rage burns against them and he heats the furnace to full tilt. It says seven times it's normal heat. Imagine a pizza oven. Um, Many of you know I love pizza. I was at Olio uh, around the corner this week for research purposes only. Um, They told me their oven was 650 degrees and it cooks a pizza in three minutes. Imagine how hot it would be to burn, to incinerate the people standing outside it. That's how hot Nebuchadnezzar gets, gets the fire. And, and there's this kind of throwaway verse there that says that the men um, that were in charge were actually um, incinerated. And it tells us that they were his mighty men, his most powerful men his secret service. Human life is cheap to tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar. And, and yet his most powerful men, he, he's willing to let them go in order to make a point. But when these young exiles are pushed into this hot furnace, they live. And look at what it says. It says in verse 20, sorry, Verse 25. Sorry, I've got the reference wrong on that. But let me just tell you what it says. You'll remember it. It says that the fire had no power over their bodies. No what? No power over their bodies. Even the king's weapons were powerless over Yahweh and his people. So let me ask you, can you relate to the Jewish exiles? Can you relate to these men? Are you ready to give your life for Jesus? That is certainly an application of this text. And many of our brothers and sisters in the world um, today are living in figurative Babylon's and in other places, and they're forced to make these decisions. 
serve the empire or be faithful to Jesus. But maybe we can't relate to these men. Maybe we, we doubt if we could ever do that. You know, I, I can barely even let anyone know that I'm a Christian or that I attend church. I don't know that I could give up everything that I love to obey God. But we've got to see ourselves in this story because we too are living in Babylon. Every human empire that's ever existed is Babylon. And Christians have always seen themselves as living in in figurative Babylons, navigating the complex ethical problems every day and trying to live faithfully to Jesus in a foreign land. We are exiles too. We are strangers in a strange land, dual citizens, ultimately citizens of the city of God. And we too are expected to seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf without compromising our faithfulness to Christ. Speaking truth to power at times, becoming a disruptive witness to the lordship of Christ. We may not be asked to give our lives in the Babylon in which we we reside, but we're always asked to give our allegiance, which means we're always required to show that our true loyalty belongs to Christ. Now, I could stop here, and I could say, be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe that's the way the children's story typically goes. Uh, But if I stopped here, what I would do is I would feed the lie that many of us already believe, that Christianity is primarily about what we do, about becoming more courageous, honest, independent person, which, to be honest, sounds a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. But that's not the point of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't the heroes of the story, are they? They aren't even the main characters. They're not the heroes. The hero of this story is the fourth man in the fire. So what do we know about him? Verse 25 says, Nebuchadnezzar says, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This fourth man has human and divine attributes. And to Nebuchadnezzar's polytheistic world, he looks like the son of the gods. But it's not his physical appearance that's so striking. It's what his appearance, his presence, demonstrates that's key here. By appearing here, he vindicates the exiles. He subverts the power of Nebuchadnezzar, and he establishes his own authority. Because this is an appearance of God. This is a theophany. In fact, if you read into the next chapter, you'll see even King Nebuchadnezzar, he blesses God, and he gives one of the highest expressions and confessions of God's authority in all of Scripture. He says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. See, in this appearance, the true king comes on the scene. But how does the true king wield his power? He uses his power to deliver. He delivers his people, right? 
Verse 26 says that they came out of the fire unharmed. Or he, he saves them from out of the furnace, right? Or does he? Do you see what happened in the story? He doesn't save them from the furnace. He actually saves them through the furnace. And that preposition makes all the difference. See, God could have, um, you know, if you were playing God in this situation, maybe you'd say, you know what, I'm just going to smite Nebuchadnezzar and all the Babylonians and transport the exiles back to their lands. God could have done that. Could have brought a, a plague of locusts. There's a whole host of ways he could have acted in this situation, but he, but he didn't do those things. In this story, he displayed his power and authority by getting down in the furnace with his people and walking around in the midst of the fire. And the fire had no power over their bodies. There it is, verse 27. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. See, he didn't save them from the furnace. He brought them through the furnace unscathed. And in this appearing to Nebuchadnezzar, we see something of what the incarnation of Jesus would be. This is a Christmas sermon after all, isn't it? This is an Advent sermon. Because years later, another king would come to be with his people. And they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And he would be born not in a palace of a king, but among a lowly family in a manger in Bethlehem. And he would enter into the suffering of this world and the powerful leaders of the world, the kings and the religious leaders, would try to kill him. And he would go through the ultimate fire. He would go through the judgment of God and death itself in order to bring his people through death and judgment unscathed. You know, if we're honest, this, this may not be the king that we want. This may not be the story we want. We want God to deliver us from the cancer, from the divorce, from the abandonment, from the sickness, from the unemployment, from the alienation. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. But we all die. We all die. And even when God doesn't rescue us from those things, he's still God, and he's still good. And he will rescue us. He will bring us through death unscathed because he's always the God who's with his people, which means he will come and sit with us in the pain and the suffering and death itself and bring us through the other side. God with us, Emmanuel. So the fire will not burn you. He will save you to the uttermost. He is the true king, and he lays down his power for his people so that someday he might come again and raise us from the dead by the power of his resurrection. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every language, every nation, every tribe will confess that the slain lamb is Lord. To him be the glory. May he hasten that day. Amen.